Make their way back to their seats. I want to invite you to grab a copy of God's Word if you have one. I hope you do. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, I'll just reiterate some of the things that uh, Pastor Ryan has uh, introduced me. My name is Jace Williamson. Uh, I am a pastor at FBC Van Alstine, just to the north of you guys. Um, I am a OG fan of this church, all right? I feel like I've like got to see y'all grow up. Um, and let me just say, right on the onset, uh, this is my first time here at Joel's permanent facility. What an amazing property y'all have. What an amazing gift that y'all have been given by the Lord. And when you just think about what 2020 has brought, um, and you just think about where y'all have started and setting up chairs and setting up speakers. Some of you are like, amen, get me out of that, right? Uh, but when you think about where the Lord has brought you, and I, I'm a firm believer that I think this year, God has been trying to teach us the lesson that he taught his people in Exodus. The manna, right? Day by day, he's going to give you what you need. And if you try to store up some of the things that he's trying to do, it's going to spoil, right? And it's this daily dependence that God requires of us. And I believe that this year has brought us to a point where maybe we're starting to understand that. That we really can't control the next day. That we really can't have much sovereignty over what's coming next month or January or February. And, and the Lord, and it has really shown me as I was driving up, it was just a beautiful, like this garden, that the rich in biblical themes, right? Man, that he's given you all this gift, but he wants dependence. That's not my message today. I just wanted to share that. But Ryan is a mentor of mine. I'm very thankful that um, I'm able to be here this morning. So I want to invite you again to look at Matthew chapter 2. And, and if you notice, if, if some of you uh, Bible scholars may know that this is usually a uh, Christmas text. Okay, But hopefully today I'm going to show you the grand plan that God has for the nations. That God is a God of not just Melissa or Van Alstine or Grayson County or Collin County or Texas. He's a God of the nations and he's drawing people to himself. And one day, all of the nations in every tongue and every language will bow to him as Lord and Savior. And this is in this text this morning. Because Christmas is, it's such an interesting season, right? We're, we're kind of putting it behind you, right? Because some of you still have the leftovers in your, in your fridge. Maybe the toys are still out. Like, don't go to my house right now. There's Barbies exploding everywhere. I have a five and a three-year-old girl. They're not mine. All right, you're like, oh, you have Barbies? No, okay. Um, but uh, just wrapping paper everywhere, right? We're kind of putting a bow on this season, kind of sending it off, and we're welcoming 2021. But it seems like every year, uh, Christmas starts earlier. Do you notice that? Uh, there's like this uh, debate on when you can start listening to Christmas music, and when you can start wearing sweaters, and when you can put your lights up and your tree up, all that stuff. But the Christmas season is the biggest holiday that's shared by Christians and secular culture alike. Okay, there seems to be this language that's shared as well. Even people that don't claim Jesus as their Savior will, will say things like, this is a time for peace. 
This is a time where no one can be sad. This is a time for happiness, right? But the difference for the Christian is that our peace, our happiness, is not found in sights and sounds and smells and traditions. It isn't based upon this warm, fuzzy feeling of Christmas magic. Maybe some of you are in this room, you're like, man, I'm, I just want to hold on to this Christmas season in my little bubble, right? No, for the, for the Christian, the Christmas is, has a foundation outside of feelings. It's, it's found in the historical root, in, in the fact that God came to save the world. And we read a text this morning, it was way cuter than I'm going to read it right now, okay, in Isaiah 52, that said, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That is what the Christmas season is about. It's about God revealing Himself and going to make His, way, uh, make his name known throughout the world. And so, with that as our basis, let's read together Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search, diligent, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This morning, we're going to look at this story that is exclusive to the book of Matthew and take from it four truths. And this is a famous account of the birth narrative, and like I said, that is unique to the book of Matthew, but is also one of the most well-known, right? It's, and when I say well-known, I mean a version of it is, is well-known, right? You know the song, We Three Kings. I'm not going to sing it for you, but you probably know it. And at first glance, you will see probably several things that are not here in spite of popular opinion. First, there's no mention of kings in this text, okay? There's wise men, magi, probably assume that they're king because they're wealthy. We'll get to them in a second. And secondly, there's no mention of how many there were. There's three gifts, doesn't mean there's three of them. Third, there's... 
they were not there that the night Jesus was born, right? It says, notice Jesus was in a house by the time they get, they get there. A lot of scholars say that Jesus was either eight months or two years old by the time he, they got there. Now, my point here is not to shame anybody, like throw away your nativity scenes or anything like that this morning. But rather challenge you to look at this story through a new lens. Oftentimes we can become desensitized by what we think we know about the Bible. We read this story, we hear it in kids' church, we hear it in other places, and we come, we have these ideas and we just kind of throw them into the story. But when we really see what's here, we're going to see a God that moves in miraculous ways. But the question that I want to ask you this morning is what does Matthew want us to know by including this piece in his birth story? Because although this is written in the context of Jesus' birth, absolutely, Jesus is kind of this figure kind of behind the scenes. And at the forefront, you see these wise men, you see this temperamental, insecure, power-hungry king... And you, and, you, and you see these characters that are found nowhere else in the gospel stories. So maybe a more important question is not what does he want us to know, but what do we need to learn from who he includes in this account? So the next four points, and Nick, the four truths that we're going to look at are going to be talking about these things. Okay? So first, the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus is born the true king. Jesus is born the true king. The opening and only words of the wise men declare who it is they are looking for by asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. Let's not not gloss over that statement because it's the basis of the whole story. It's about a newborn king, or excuse me, a newborn child destined to be king. Now, the people of God had many kings before Jesus, but this time it was different. At this point in history, the Jews had a king. It was Herod, right? Which we'll talk about in just a moment. But verse 4 makes it clear what or who the wise men really meant by king. Because Herod gathers his Jewish scribes and priests together and inquires to them. He says, where is the Christ to be born? The people may have had a king that ruled them, but they were yet to have a Messiah. See, the wise men are not searching for this mere successor to King Herod. They're searching for the final king to end all kings. And if you notice, this is for free this morning. If you look at the first two times that, uh, Her- that Matthew mentions it's Herod, he calls him by king. But after, he's just Herod. Because the king has now arrived. The true king to end all kings is here. Luke 2 gives testimony to Simeon and Anna who are diligently waiting for this king to arrive. But Herod, this is the last thing that he was looking for. You see, the Messiah was the one who was long awaited. This God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule. He would establish a pure kingdom. He would never lose his reign. You see, to call Jesus king was a political statement, but it was also a theological statement. There's a reason why we say Lord and Savior. 
These are not synonyms. But it gives witness to how Jesus rules and saves. You see, we love Jesus as our Savior. We love Him when He forgives us of our sins. But it's a whole other thing to recognize Him as your King. To recognize Him as ruler over your life. To surrender all things. To surrender the throne of your own life. It was this King, this Messiah, that threatened Herod. And intrigued the wise men. Secondly, Jesus draws unlikely worshipers from all nations. Jesus draws unlikely worshipers from all nations. One of the great things about Matthew's gospel, and I know that y'all are going through the Sermon on the Mount right now, is that it features many instances of Jesus welcoming the outcasts. And I think this is due to the fact that Matthew's very calling was one that he came from the outskirts of society into the fold of Jesus, right? His very calling when he was called in Matthew chapter 9 was at this banquet of sinners and tax collectors and Jesus calls him to be a disciple. And Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus at the very beginning in his genealogy in chapter 1 of having Gentiles in his genealogy, right? People outside the fold. And it ends in Matthew chapter 28 with this call, this commission to what? The nations. So it includes all the nations and we're called to the nations. Matthew's gospel is this beautiful picture of us as the people, as the church being called out To share the good news. And notice here in Matthew chapter 2. Some of the very first worshipers were not scribes. Were not priests that knew the Messiah was coming. But pagan astrologers drawn from another land. Wise men. Now let's talk about these guys for just a second. Because notice we're not given names or even really a precise location of where these wise men came from. Most likely Persia, East it just says, right? But we do know their occupation. You see, these men would have been looked at in their culture as intellectual elites. They would have been very well read. They would have known scriptures from many religions. That's why they know of this prophecy, right? But more than that, they were astrologers. Now, I learned a lot about astrology, all right? Not by, here's what I don't know. Pretty much everything, okay? Uh, it's, 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 I just looked it up and read some articles. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm stopping right here because this is very deep, okay? But there is a difference between astrology and astronomy, right? Astronomy is just studying space. That's about as simple as I can put it. All right, But astrology is reading stars and believing that they're communicating with you. Interpreting the things that God has placed up there to, to basically have future events that you think these have a correlation. So think about what a scribe or a priest would do with the people of, with the people of, people of Israel. They would read the scriptures and they would interpret... What God has revealed to them. 
See, astrologers would do the same thing. They would read the stars and they would interpret for the people what they believe was being revealed. And so when you think about this, this is still very popular in our culture with horoscopes and all that. But when you think about this, what God was doing everywhere else, everywhere else in Scripture, the title of these men was looked at very negatively. They were idolaters. They were sinners. They were literally believing in the creation over the creator. But here it is different. Like many people, they, they fell trapped to worshiping the creation over the creator itself. Making a created thing meant to glorify God, the thing that they worship. But what do we see God do? We see God bring these men, the most unlikely of men, to bended knee before our true God. You see... These wise men, they were outsiders in both race. They were Gentiles. They were outsider in religion. They were pagan. They were outsiders in profession. They were astrologers. Yet they were invited to the king. You see, to those reading this account, it would have been appalling to see these worshipers in the presence of who they believe the Messiah is. To many, they were the least deserving guests. Whatever you think about these guys, these wise men, whether you think of them as undeserving or idolaters or pagan, one thing is clear, and we're going to get to this in a second, is God led them to his son. Augustine says this, harmonizing Luke and Matthew of how God draws his shepherds. He says, Jesus then was manifested neither to the learned nor the righteous, for ignorance belongs to the shepherds of Luke and piety to the idolaters of Matthew. Another commentator says this, By placing the Magi in his Christmas story as he had the Gentiles in his genealogy, Matthew wishes to say that God surmounts racial and moral barriers to his saving work by calling to the Son those considered most unworthy. You see, these verses show us that there may be true servants of God in places where we should not expect to find them. And that the grace of God is not tied to places or families or prestige or what you know. See, Matthew portrays Jesus as this universal Messiah for the nations. And as a child, he draws the nations to his bedside. And as the resurrected Christ, he commands us to go to the nations. And as the gospel begins with an invitation to the nations, it ends with a great commission to the nations. That's why we read in Matthew 28, 18 through 19, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the true king, right? Authority on the throne. Go, therefore, the command, and make disciples of all nations. What a God that draws unlikely people. Draws unlikely people that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that don't talk like us. But he draws them to himself. For the sole purpose of worship. Third. Jesus draws worshipers in unlikely ways. So, like I said, as I, as I was studying for this, I, I got sidetracked. Okay, I was reading about 
stars and space. And I even like, you know, like the cookies on your on your phone. Like I got this um, advertisement a couple days after about this like genie that could hook me up with what's going forth and all. I was like, okay, well, maybe she can tell me about some stuff that's going on 2021, you know. But I just all these things that are that are like so far outside of what I know, right? The depth of what we do not understand is, is astounding. The depth of what I don't understand is even more astounding, right? And it's similar with this text over and over. The, the Bible just baffles us. It baffles our curiosity about just how certain things happen. So one of the first questions that I was, you know, one of my, my daughters was asking me, he's like, okay, what about the star, right? Like, how does this work, daddy? And I have to say, I don't know, baby. I don't really know how this happened. And, and most people probably like my daughter. You're thinking, uh, you know, it doesn't say like it spoke to them. It only says they saw it and they came running, Right. And some of you are going, okay, but how did that star go before them on that little five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? How did the star stand over the place where Jesus was? Okay, here's, here's the answer that I came up with. All right, you ready? We don't know. <laughs> and that's not a cop-out. I hope it's not a cop-out. But there's numerous efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions of planets or comets or supernovas. We even had something very similar happen on Monday on the 21st this week. We got some great Facebook photos of just some black star up there, right? But here, I can tell you what I believe, okay? Because if we try to explain this, we try to, you know, go outside of what we really know. I believe we can stick to scripture and be faithful here because Romans 1 tells us that the, that the expanse of God's creation gives us a glimpse of the glory of God. It says that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, unaided reason can look at the world and see the beauty of creation and know that there's a creator. That's why we're drawn to places that have mountains. That's why we're drawn to the ocean. To see these beautiful landscapes because it gives witness to something that we know. That no one goes before the Grand Canyon and just talks about how great they are. They feel very small. So before we go to these places like the oceans and the mountains and all these things and we take pictures, what we need to do is just go, man, I need to worship. It's supposed to point us beyond what we're seeing to a creator, right? And that's what I believe is happening. That the purpose of these stars aligning is to give glory to God. To give a glimpse of the glorious creator. In regards to the star here, God wasn't just displaying his glory, but displaying his sovereignty over creation itself. John Piper says it this way. He says, God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. Let's sit for this. Let's sit with this for just a moment. Follow this thread here with me. God in Genesis 1 creates all things. The Bible says that he knows, he names the stars, right? 
He knows all things. And when we see this structure in Genesis 1, creation shows us that we have a God who sits in control of all things. And all things sit in submission to him. He can command things. Mountains rise, the ocean stops, clouds form. All these things happen. It gives a structure to who God is. Things submit to him. But the only thing that rebels against him is his crowning achievement in creation, us. We're the only thing that rebels. And humanity's greatest sin is choosing to worship created things over over the creator itself. And we see this traced throughout scripture. And we see it here with these wise men, these magi, who, who choose to make the stars their God. So what do they do? They study the stars. They worship the stars. They obey the stars. Until one day they believe that the stars have led them to a great king. And they want to get on the good side of this king. So they go and follow this, these stars... And within their travels, they're led to a house. They first go to Jerusalem, because why not? The king should be there in the, in the big city. But God doesn't work like that. Sends them to the boondocks in Bethlehem, right? And when they get to the house, they don't see a king. They see a young child sitting in the lap of a poor woman. They didn't hear him speak. They didn't see any miracles. But it says they bent their knee. They worshipped. They saw the eternal one in the flesh who God, who John says, through whom all things were created. So here's what, here's what God did. God used their God to draw them to the one true God. The men who worshipped the stars bent their knee to the God that created them. This is what our God does. He, he uses unlikely means to draw people to worship Him. He uses trials like 2020 has brought. He uses financial setbacks. He uses hard times in your marriage. He uses wayward children. He uses things in our nation that we can't control to draw us to himself. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, if it should be that men should fail to preach the gospel, God can conduct souls to his son by a star. Y'all, God can use unlikely measures, things beyond our comprehension, to draw people to himself. What a great God we serve. And lastly this morning, Jesus brings opposition, but deserves worship. We spent most of our time speaking about the Magi, but I want, to, want you to notice two other characters that Matthew kind of sneaks into this story. You have Herod, this, this king that we're going to talk about in just a second, and you have these scribes and priests. And I want you to notice that immediately upon Jesus' birth, he receives opposition. Immediately. Herod is quite an evil king, extremely insecure, power-hungry, deceitful. 
It says that, hey, once you find him, I want to go and worship him too, right? You read between the lines there. It said that Herod himself kills his own children so he can stay in power. And if you read past what we read here, it even says the means where Herod goes to make sure that he stays in power, right? You can talk about that with your kids on the way home, maybe. But I don't know if I want to go there, okay? So you have this king whose, whose reaction to Jesus was one of hostility, was one of anger. And secondly, you have these scribes and priests, these men who would have a deep understanding of the scriptures, have spent their lives, much like the Magi, seeking to understand the things of their God. Yet they act with indifference. If there's anybody in this story that should be sprinting to Bethlehem, it's these scribes and priests. They would have known the prophecy. They told Herod about it. They would have been told about it as a young child. And they would have been like, okay, maybe this is an outside chance that there's, this is the guy. You at least go check it out, right? It's five miles. Just, just walk, right? Just go. But they sit in Jerusalem. Much of the world's reaction can be summed up in these two responses. There's people that are hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. There's people right now, brothers and sisters, right now, one of my good friends is in Malaysia right now. Southeast Asia. And they, are, they can't worship. They can't meet to worship. Because of hostility towards the gospel. People that try to live out the gospel message every single day under covert means because of fear of their lives. We don't feel that a lot. Like we get a little breath of hostility and we're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were supposed to agree on this. But what we're hit with is the indifference, right? Throughout Jesus' ministry, he experienced both, right? You saw people, you had people see Jesus ascend to heaven after he was resurrected, right? And they literally turned their back and were just like, okay, cool, I'm going to go back home. But then you had people who were so angered by his message that they illegally arrested him and crucified him. And we think it's weird how his followers are going to be, uh, if, if we follow him, we're going to have a great life, right? If we, if we preach his message, it's going to be easy. Well, this goes back to our very first point that Jesus brings opposition because of who he is. He demands a response. There is no neutrality. See, Tim Keller says this way, he says, If the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. Christmas demands, the the coming of Jesus demands that you respond to who Jesus is. And I want you to notice the response, the right response of when you come face to face with Jesus. 
The Magi say, says this, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered gifts. Let's look at these couple of things and, and how we worship Jesus, right? First, they were relentless in their search for the king. When they saw the star, joy entered into their hearts. In fact, in exceeding joy. Their joy led them to their act of worship. Y'all, is this not the Christian experience? Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. Yet often we act like the most fearful people on the planet. That we don't know what the future holds? Okay, great. But we have a God who controls all things. And like we sang today, he's good. And out of our joy, I'm convinced that people don't worship Jesus because they don't have joy in him. They feel like it's something they have to conjure up. But when you look at the example, these people saw Jesus, saw the star before they even saw Jesus, and they were filled with joy, and that led them to worship. I know when you walk in here, some of you are beat down from the week. But listen, joy is something that the world and suffering can't touch. And when our joy is rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, That's how we worship him. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped, they ascribed dignity to him by falling down before him. Over and over, true worshipers physically show their reverence for God by bowing low. One of the things I love about scripture is that people who want or don't want to worship Jesus always fall down. You got the people that are scared, that are falling low, and you got the people that want to, that are falling low. And one day, like we talked about before, everyone will bow low before the God of the universe. Because what you say when you bow low is you're saying, you are high, I am low. You have great dignity, I am lowly in comparison. Y'all, I don't know if you do this physically, but I would challenge you to do this in the mornings. Start your day low. Start your day low. Have that absolute physical feeling of being on your knees before Jesus. It doesn't have to be a show. It doesn't have to be for very long. But just start your day low. And lastly, they gave their gifts. You see, when people are drawn to Christ... They find themselves wanting to bring him their finest resources. The giving up of the gifts is to say, you are my treasure and these things are not. The Bible is very clear. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, right? And this is the great irony of of Christmas season because it comes another day of just materialism. But some of the first worshipers of Jesus were those who chose to act sacrificially to give. Not because Jesus needed anything. Our God is not served by human hands, right? But because they valued him so highly. So as believers, when we come to worship Jesus, it's not that we give him the leftovers of our worship or even the leftovers of our resources. 
you talk to these guys on staff, a lot of, this is a funny example, but a lot of the, when people bring stuff to the church, they got, hey, I got an old uh, 1998 Dell computer. Y'all, you guys need it? Uh, no, brother, we're good. Like, thank you, though. And I'm not trying to bag on that sacrificial gift by any means, but a lot of the time, that's how we view the church. We want to give Jesus and his church our leftover resources. What do we have left from what we go and spend on other things? What do we have left from what we give our time to during the week? Then I'm going to give it to discipleship. Then I'm going to serve in the, in the, in the children's ministry and student ministry and all those things. Y'all, Jesus deserves your finest resources. He deserves your first breath in the morning. So here's our invitation this morning. And you can come up, Matt. We have a God that sent his son to be the Messiah. The king of the world. And the truth is, is that all nations will come and bow before him. He draws unlikely worshipers through unlikely means. He wields the world to give glory to Jesus. And in this, there's supposed to be a response. The right response is joyful, sacrificial worship, noting that only Jesus can satisfy. This response that gives your gifts when you understand who the true Jesus is. So here's my invitation for you this morning. I'm going to read this in the, in the form of a prayer. And, and, and this is a really good time to examine your own heart. Examine where you are right now. We're about to kick off a new year here. That doesn't mean things are magically going to get better. In fact, maybe they get worse. I'm not going to be pessimistic or anything this morning. But wouldn't you much rather have your hope in a God that controls all things rather than yourself? Because the response is to lay down... Lay down who you think should be the king of your lives and surrender to the true king. And so I'm going to read this prayer. Maybe maybe this is a time where you close your eyes. Maybe this is a time where you bow your head to get low before the Lord. Ascribe dignity to him. Maybe you respond and say, man, I've been indifferent to Jesus Maybe you're hostile to Jesus because you're angry at the things that he's, quote unquote, done to you. So listen to this quote from Spurgeon. It says this, enter the house and worship. Forget the preacher. Let the starlight shine for other eyes. Jesus was born that you might be born again. He lived that you he lived that so that you may live. He died so that you might be dead to sin. He is risen and today he makes intercession for sinners that they may be reconciled to God through him. Come then, believe, trust, 
Rejoice, adore. If you neither have gold, frankincense, or myrrh, bring your faith, your love, your repentance, and falling down before the Son of God, pay Him the reverence of your hearts. That's the invitation this morning. That we have a God that draws unlikely people. Maybe you think, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't have enough worth. I don't have enough merit. What do I have to give? Friends, bring your repentance. Bring your love. Bring your faith. Jesus loves you. Loves you so much that he took the cross for you. He rose in three days. Paid a debt that you could not pay. One day he will return. There will be no more masks. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more lives cut short. There will be no more sin or disease. And all the nations will come before King Jesus on the throne and will worship him for eternity. Do you want to be a part of that? Because I do. Let me pray for us and then we can worship. God, we love you. We thank you so much for this time together. What a time that we have to, to sing, to proclaim truth, to see the faith of children, to look at your word. God, I'm so thankful that you draw unlikely people to yourself. That you draw idolaters and sinners. That you give us grace and mercy at your feet. God, I'm thankful that you are a God of the nations. Not just the God of America. But you are drawing people of all kinds to yourself. God, we long for the day that you return to make all things right. But God, right now in this moment, as your word says, the fountain is still running. We have time. So God, I pray for the person in this room that's indifferent to you, that doesn't think they need you. I pray for the person in this room that's hostile to you. I pray for the person in this room that needs to repent of sin. But I pray for all of us that we would bow low before you, King Jesus, and worship you. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen.
so great to see all of you this morning just before we dismiss um thank you brother jace for that strong word it's just uh, such an encouragement to me and um as he talked about getting low just a reminder the lord has just been pressing upon this uh in my heart over the last few weeks and just as we sang surrender um i can just tell you i don't usually do this but um you know some of you pick words for the year uh, my word for going into the new year and what we're going to preach on next sunday morning um at our new time is humility um, just the call as Christians to be humble people. And so um, that's where uh, we're going to focus next Sunday morning when we start our new time, 9 a.m. for our early service and then 1030 again. Um, and then we'll pick up on the 10th back in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so uh, come next week, uh, prepare to hear God's word calling us to be a people um, who live in humility as humble people. And um, thank you so much for being here. Love you guys. Uh, we'll see you back here at 9 o'clock, a few of you at 9 o'clock and then 1030. God bless. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.